0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio, a leading voice in socially conscious and responsible travel. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places where no one else does. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We have a great show in store for you today, so sit back and enjoy meeting our wonderful guests who are leaving positive footprints one step at a time.
2: First on this edition of World Footprints Radio, you'll meet Peter Vogel, founder of Culture Prep. Peter joins us to talk about his work in Uganda and around the world. Then David Morey, considered one of America's top strategists, stops by to discuss the current events in North Africa and the Middle East, and his ideas for how the U.S. can reboot its foreign policy. David has advised some of the world's top business leaders, 12 global presidential elections, including President Barack Obama, and five Nobel Peace Prize winners, including the Dalai Lama. Finally, prepare your taste buds as Chef Shashila Raghavan shares the culinary traditions and flavors of Malaysia from her new book. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com.
1: Also, we've started a new feature called Ask Our Guests. Well, you'll have an opportunity to participate in our show by asking one of our future guests a question. We will provide notice of future guests through our Facebook and Twitter pages so you can find links to those pages from our website, worldfootprints.com. Finally, just a reminder that all of our shows are archived on our website and we're always as close as your phone and your mobile device. We're distributed worldwide, and we've just been picked up by South African-based Travel Radio, which you can find at travelradio.co.za. And, of course, the latest travel deals, news, and information is as close as your fingertips at our website, worldfootprints.com. Peter Vogel is the founder and managing director of Culture Prep, Inc., and a noted speaker on advancing cross-cultural relations in education and other industries. Since 1988, Culture Prep has been empowering individuals and groups from around the world to overcome the obstacles that threaten meaningful and productive cross-cultural relationships. And we're happy to welcome Peter to our show. Welcome.
3: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: It's our pleasure indeed. Now, what exactly is Culture Prep, and how did it come about?
3: Well, back in the mid-'80s, I worked in... Uh, management relief and uh, conflict resolution and um, ended up working with gangs and we developed a program called Safe to Relate Uh, and we found that so much of the conflict between gangs at the time was uh, race based was uh, ethnic based and we developed a program called Safe to Relate to be able to Examine some of the obstacles between the gangs at the time uh, and create uh some communication and some trust issues and modify the program eventually to uh, bring the program to corporations to schools to churches and to communities
1: and and you know it sounds like in some ways peter that um that your the development of culture prep and and safe to relate um actually came from a um uh an an interest really in in developing you know uh encouraging better human relationships where did that interest come from for you
3: well i am a uh, an anglo male and i was dating a african american woman back in college and uh and this was at a predominantly white uh institution in in northern Wisconsin and um we were faced with uh being very much a, a minority as a couple and um undertook the task uh to examine both of our preconceived notions toward each other and it became uh a, a, a personal um uh a mission of sorts for both of us to examine our both hearts and um uh, to bring uh, those findings out to the greater community at a a largely predominantly white institution and talk about some of those things that were preventing relationship not only between us as a couple but uh, we as a community in wisconsin
2: peter uh you had mentioned safe to relate
3: explain a
2: bit more about safe to relate and what that is
3: Yes, safe to relate is is the flagship program for culture prep and it examines basically uh three different things and one would be uh encouraging individuals to examine their own uh demons uh trip wires uh landmines that prevent uh meaningful uh authentic relationships with the other and uh a second component uh a a relational component uh it seems like we can even become somewhat liberated uh, as individuals and say we have no problem with other people and and um, we can talk about cross-cultural unity and, and perhaps even have it in our heart to do so, but unless it's translated into uh, a, a demonstrative way of relating with other people, it kind of falls short. So the second uh, component is that of Relating to other people, and the third component is that of looking at our institutions, our programs, procedures, and and how they impact uh, people's ability within a community or institution uh, to be able to actually uh, step forth with meaningful relationships with people who are different from ourselves. And we look at that with the personal, and relational, institutional, and how those different Uh, components interact to create cross-cultural change.
2: One of the uh, things that you uh, touched on was, you know, about these different prisons through which we all live, whether it's race, culture, gender, and so forth. How does those sorts of issues really come to bear in, you know, keeping people apart and keeping that cultural divide? And what have you learned about overcoming that, that can really encourage people, give them confidence to build those bridges where it's needed?
3: You know, Ian, I've had the pleasure, too, of also uh, working as a senior member with uh, an organization called Up With People. And Up With Mm. People, for those that aren't familiar with the organization, started back in the 60s. And it was a stage-based performance of people from all over the world, young people, that came together to promote uh, uh, a program uh, a show about peace, and I was able to see a model and, and be part of that uh, organization and culture prep much reflects too of uh, uh, some of those core principles of up with people where um, people come together and through service through getting to know each other and through traveling the world together and actually uh, addressing head-on those issues that divide us, but um, but doing it through service. And I'm thinking of culture prep. One of the main things that we do, too, is uh, cross-cultural assessments at, at different institutions and communities, and we found that uh, the data shows us, and anecdotally, that those institutions, whether public, uh, parochial, Christian, what have you, those institutions and people that are engaged in service activities together, working together, hand-in-hand, hand, seem to be able to get through many of the obstacles and address those obstacles that divide.
1: Peter, you, you've you taken uh, what you've developed with Culture Prep and uh, Safe to Relate really overseas, and I know you're doing some work in Uganda. What took you to Uganda out of all the African nations, um, and what are you doing there?
3: Well, back in 1998, in fact, it was right after the U.S. embassy uh, was bombed in Kenya, and there were also also threats to the Ugandan embassy as well. And and Uganda was considered the, one of the top 10 most dangerous places in the world. I had the, the the privilege and opportunity to go up in northern Uganda, and be the keynote speaker uh, at a at a youth rally that attracted about 10,000 youth, and and the topic was on reconciliation and 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 hope for the future and uh um uh, we've continued over the last uh twelve thirteen odd years and uh have built um a school uh we've mm-hmm. built uh, educational programs uh with a greater community uh medical programs and 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 perhaps uh uh thing too that applies much of this discussion is um, a reconciliation and understanding program between Muslims and Christians. Mm. And applying that same model uh... Of what we were talking about with Up With People, uh, taking a couple years of just developing the trust between the Muslim and Christian leadership and ge- slowly getting people to talk over a meal. <laughs> and we called it and continue to the power of the meal and actually bringing people together, breaking bread together, and Ultimately, working together on uh, activities and tasks that uh, impact their own children and and the entire community, and it forces people almost out of a necessity to work together for the common good
1: And, and how is that program working overall? Are you developing or successful in developing kind of what I'll call brand ambassadors for lack of a better phrase uh, for the on Uganda program? Yeah.
3: Y- yes, Tanya in fact uh Tanya Rush who uh was is with NBC Channel 9 here in Denver just recently came over to Uganda with us and did a documentary on a place in the world amidst you know within uh, a world that there's so much turmoil and division especially between Muslims and Christians and a lack of understanding and this Emmy award winning uh journalist came to a little place called Missesi, Uganda, outside of Jinja, Uganda, and uh, was able to do a story on a community where, for for lack of a better word, it's working, where where, where Muslims and Christians are working together, uh, common action for the common good. Uh, I'm not talking about a utopia. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about um, perfection, but a place where... Uh, within our little area where we have the school vocation center and where we we have the power of the meal meals, uh within a stone's throw there is a mosque, there is a Catholic school, and within our brick building operation and our school uh and feeding program together Muslims and Christians are working together for the common good.
1: Is is Aunt Uganda a uh a kind of a volunteer travel uh Opportunity as well, or no?
3: Yes, it is. And in fact, recently it had been featured on Peter Greenberg's website as a story on volunteerism. And yes, we do. We have teams, small teams of people that go over to Uganda from the States, primarily from Colorado, and work for two, three weeks at a time on the various projects that we have going there.
2: Peter, in the course of taking your message to different communities, have you encountered any people and have heartwarming stories about where this program is making a difference in the lives of some of the individuals who've had a chance to participate?
3: You know, I do, and and, and one stands out uh, in particular, um, and it goes back to my very first time going to Uganda, and it was a time, as I mentioned earlier, of turmoil, a time where uh, the outbreak of, of, of AIDS, of disease, of unemployment, of, of war, of uh, un- uh, just so many things against the people up in northern Uganda. And I was the recipient of a 12-hour receiving line. Uh, it was my first day, and, and it was a way for that village, and literally 10,000 people attended, of saying, thank you for coming to Uganda and um, and giving... Some hope, uh, and this receiving line went on for nearly 12 straight hours. And towards the end of it, and the crowd started to to basically separate, and a young boy uh, started screaming in Luganda, the native language, and jumped into my lap. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, <laughs> somewhat not with it because of the Ugandan sun. Uh, 12 hours of being in the receiving line. Um, and, and my first reaction was this poor little guy who uh, was dirty. Uh, he, he he smelled. He had a bloated little belly. Um, he had no teeth. Uh, he was losing his hair. And uh, he jumped up in my lap and just attached himself to me and, and screamed in Luganda. And I looked at my translator and said, what is he saying? I was very frustrated, and he said, he said you're standing on holy ground. Oh. And uh, I, I I was, again, somewhat angry because I went through great measures so as to not offend, and, and I looked at the translator, and I said, uh, why didn't somebody tell me? And he, he said, Peter, he said you stand on holy ground because you bring a message of peace a message of healing. Mm-hmm. So I sit there and think about a, a young boy who is probably no more, no more than 10, 11 years old, uh, you know, the, out of the mouths of babes mm-hmm. uh, who had that message, and I can't help. And, and it took a while to process that, and not only then, but as I bring a, a message around the world and this country, how we do indeed stand on holy ground, whether it's in Uganda or whether it's going to the grocery store, or passing the homeless person, or our spouse, uh, when we bring a message of reconciliation and peace,
4: mm. uh,
3: we stand on holy ground, and that will forever stand as uh, one of my most memorable times. Period, and in, in, in Uganda.
1: Indeed, indeed. I mean, what what a powerful. Visual and uh, certainly I visualized um, as you uh, shared this story and what a powerful message, Peter. And you know, one of the things that I love about what Ian and I do are people like you that we meet, um, people who are, as as we are in our in our space, really trying to make a difference. And so I appreciate you sharing your story, sharing your message. Um, with us on World Footprints, and I want to uh, quickly, as we close out, invite you to share your website address with our audience, uh, our audiences around the world, so that uh, they can um, can can uh, become more acquainted with you and and help in some way.
3: Oh, well, I'd be glad to, and I I, I might mention too, Tanya and Ian. just a caveat before I bring my uh, website is. It turned out that I found out later on that that young boy's name was Emmanuel. Oh, God is with us.
1: Oh my goodness. You've given me goose pimples.
3: Uh, The website for Culture Prep is simply uh, www.cultureprep.com
1: Thank you so much uh, Peter. Peter Vogel is the founder and managing director of a very powerful organization Culture Prep and I thank you, my dear, for joining us today.
3: The pleasure is mine, Tanya and Ian. Thank you.
2: After the break, author and strategist David Morey will share his strategy on revamping U.S. foreign policy.
0: We haven't been as strategic as we need to. And just quickly, that means rising above
1: politics.
2: Next on World Footprints Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
2: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints.
2: World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives.
1: Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., Actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Hey, this is Jay down in New Orleans,
2: and you're listening to the good folks at World Footprints. You're
0: listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya
5: and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. David Morey is the award-winning co-author of The Underdog Advantage, using the power of insurgent strategy to put your business on top. Through his company, CMG and Core Strategy Group, David has become one of America's leading strategic consultants. He has advised some of the world's top business leaders, five Nobel Peace Prize winners, and 12 successful global presidential campaigns, including President Barack Obama's. David has also served as chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on Public Diplomacy, and he's currently co-chairing the Fund for Peace. Based on recent events in the Middle East, David has developed an insurgent strategy framework that can help the U.S. reboot its foreign policy in Egypt and beyond, and he joins us today to share his thoughts Welcome, David.
0: Tonya, it's a pleasure.
1: Now, you have a list of insurgent strategies that should be considered as the U.S. attempts to reassess and re-energize our foreign policy. What are those strategies, and are they similar to those found in your book, The Underdog Advantage?
0: They draw on the insurgent or the underdog framework, which we, by the way, borrowed by studying 100 years of politics, uh, even battle, Fighting and the best business examples, the best business leaders. And the premise is simply you've got to be the insurgent. You've got to be the underdog. You've got to play offense and go on the attack and be proactive and use strategy. And that's what uh, my argument is the U.S. must do in the wake of managing Egypt, we think so far so you know, successfully. I mean, the U.S., uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out, of course, and revolutions don't always end so happily. The Bolshevik revolution, the Philippine Revolution, the French Revolution, they're examples of disappointment after the expectations have been set so high. Um, but you know this is a chance because we got through it and I think the administration generally uh, managed it well. Secretary Clinton managed it well. This is a chance to pivot off that, that 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 remarkable set of changes we see now, it's spreading to other countries in the Middle East and reboot American foreign policy, take a more strategic posture. We haven't been as strategic as we need to. And just quickly, that means rising above politics. You know, governing our nation's foreign policy from that wonderful center that Moynihan used to occupy, that Luger still occupies, that John Glenn used to occupy, you know, rising above some of the um, ideology we see on cable TV on the hard right, the hard left, and getting some things done in the center that make some sense, the pending South Korea, uh, Colombia, Panama trade deals, for example, normalizing relations with Cuba, stuff that every assistant secretary from every administration has supported a, a move more aggressively toward normalizing relations with Cuba. We ought to start doing those sorts of things strategically, Mm -hmm. looking at the democratic forces around the world, and starting to put that front and center, not to get out too far ahead on democratization, because if we push it too fast, or we brand it American, it can actually set those movements back. Rather, those movements have to rise up from the countries themselves. They have to be indigenous. So we can play at the margins, but we can't play at the center. And we do that through supporting organizations like NDI and IRI, great organizations.
1: Your third strategy is uh, ramp up global youth outreach. And that almost sounds like you took a uh, or or transferred a um, page from the playbook of uh, Barack Obama's campaign. Yeah, It's
0: happening around the world, isn't it? Um, You know, elections, for example, the last election in South Korea, you know, largely, uh, actually the one before the last one, was one because the youth turned out. I mean, you see it in Asia, you see it in the Middle East where, Over 30% of the population is uh, under 30. Uh, Over 60% in Egypt is under 30. Some people, some demographic experts calculate. We've got to start looking at those issues, the sort of next generation issues. Mm -hmm. in the Middle East has 25% unemployment among the youth. You know, you're going to have a lot more TV scenes with that kind of dissatisfaction.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you know from a public diplomacy perspective, you know, kind of uh, touching on your, your fourth point about foreign policy, um, public you know diplomacy can be practiced through a variety of methods, from media interviews to educational exchanges. What things should NGOs, corporations, and even the media consider in reestablishing relationships with, with Egypt? and surrounding Middle Eastern countries?
0: Well, we know we don't have more money to invest in U.S. foreign policy, so we're going to have to do things smarter. And one example of that is, as you mentioned, public diplomacy and Joe Nye's soft power. We're going to have to, and Joe Nye's written more about smart power lately, You know, we're going to have to invest in building institutions. The Fund for Peace does a lot of great work in those areas. Uh, We're going to have to, if you look at what's really going to happen in Egypt, we've got to slow down the political clock. Probably September is a little too quickly upon us for elections, but we may, you know, need to live with that because it's, you know, there's not going to be maximum patience there among the people that overthrew this government. Um, They're going to have to build some stability into the system, get some institutional checks and balances, rewrite a constitution. You know, even the mechanics of elections, the mechanics of democracy take a long time to put together. They're going to need help to do that. And we should be in the middle of coalitions, not doing it just ourselves, but be in the middle of coalitions that help provide those skills and those infrastructure to civil society in countries like Egypt.
2: David, you serve as co-chair for the Fund for Peace. What is the Fund for Peace?
0: It's a 53-year-old organization created by a family right after World War II who lost their oldest son and, in his honor, endowed a foundation uh, that builds on just what I was talking about, building civil society, avoiding conflict. You know, I mean, has your doctor ever... um, sort of giving you a checkup annually and giving you some advice about um, how to get healthier. I mean, you know, it's sort of proactive, preventative medicine. That's the kind of foreign policy we need. We need to get out ahead of the problem so they they are um, not crises, but, you know, often are less severe crises or even preventable crises. The Fund for Peace tries to do that. It tries to prevent war before it happens.
2: Tourism plays an integral role in the establishment of peace and security in in many places, and it's a major industry in Egypt. What can the country do to help rebuild that valuable infrastructure in a short time? Is there a role for the U.S. to play or assist in those efforts?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think the NGO community, like the Fund for Peace, can be very active in there. Uh, the U.S., as part of coalition support, can be in there helping to rewrite, you know, even rewriting a constitution. I remember when, you know, uh, you know, post-invasion of Iraq, you know, starting to talk to some of the opposition people who were now potentially running the country. And just the mechanics of rewriting a constitution, look at the drama that was created by the American story of writing our constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And they don't have a Thomas jefferson sitting there you know we're lucky we had a thomas jefferson sitting there at that critical time this is tough stuff they can borrow some of the best practices from around the world, uh, and, and that's something that, you know, you've got to really build this. It's like building a house. you got to build the foundation. you got to bring in subcontractors to help build the rooms and do the different pieces of the house. They're going to have to, um, you know, they're going to have to get some economic progress moving fairly quickly because the economic uh, patience will not be uh, everlasting amongst the Egyptian people. Uh, you know, they're they going to have to start uh, bolstering up the security so you don't have, uh, you know, all kinds Kinds of civil unrest within the, within the country, uh, they're going to have to f- figure out how you participate in the system, how you hold debates, how you compete fairly in elections, how you build voter lists that are real, not like, you know, Mubarak. You know, at least he wasn't uh, he wasn't getting over a hundred percent of the vote.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but
0: you get the feeling they don't have really credible voter lists and, and mechanics for voting. These all, these are the kind of things. Fund for Peace does this sort of thing, and in addition to predicting and preventing conflict, these are the kind of things that NGOs can be very very valuable in terms of their contribution.
2: As we look at these calls in the Middle East for freedom, for more opportunity in places like Egypt, uh, we don't really know how this is all going to shape out. It's just not clear what shape these countries will take in years to come.
0: That is so true, Ian. And, uh, you know, one thing the Egyptian example reminds us of, teaches us again, is that politics is, is linear for a while, then becomes exponential. I mean, you know, the, the, some of the big victories we've been a part of, including Obama in 2008, of on Aquino in 1986 in the Philippines, Kim Dae-jung in South Korea in 1997, they're exponential victories. They're sort of moments when the planets align. And just when we're getting discouraged about Middle East peace, maybe all these molecules in motion, maybe it will help. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, your conventional wisdom is it's going to decrease the chance. But maybe it will increase the chance. I mean, we were making, you know, poor George Mitchell. He must be the most tired man in the world. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, two and a half years he's made, you know, one thirty-second of an inch progress in mm. east and the Middle East, and there's no one more confident to do it than George Mitchell, Senator Mitchell. Um, you know, let me make another point. You know, and as you're saying, Ian and Tanya, uh, you know, in Tunisia, uh, not just in Egypt, in Bahrain, Jordan, Yemen, Algeria, you're seeing... You know, this exponential change, its I'd almost say dominoes, you know, hitting other dominoes, but they're all different, and they all have different leadership structures and different detailed dynamics. Um, you know, Senator Moynihan was a client of ours back in the 80s, and he once said to me, uh, we were talking about Russia, I'm talking about the old Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, then, and, and he very casually said, you know, the Soviet Union is over. And I said, what do you mean the Soviet Union is over? It's 1984. He said, well, the Xerox machine will destroy it. It was a very prescient comment. And you start to think about the information revolution, Mm -hmm. how it's progressed since 1984, how it impacted Egypt. It was an election in some ways um, called foot and won on Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. This is even more important a point that that the senator was making in in 2011. And you look at the two countries in the world that try and bottle up those forces, uh, North Korea and Iran, and you mm-hmm. wonder how long will they be able to keep doing this? you know what what you know how how is it possible to bottle up this stuff you know to bottle up change you know to to um keep people happy with dictatorial rule it's just it's it it, it has to fall of its own weight, I would think, and we've got to be again back to the the fourth point I was making. Smarter foreign policy, more proactive.
1: Yeah, switching gears a little bit, David, what are some of the things a company should consider when uh, trying to establish itself in a foreign market?
0: Well, in a foreign market, you've got to, you know, do your homework. And uh, there's, you know, you've got such great resources at your fingertips now on the computer. There's a lot of researchable uh, data banks out there in terms of going in. Uh, what I have found is you've got to build a network of locals, people that know the country well. I used to go uh, part of something called the International Association of Political Consultants. They meet once a year. It's like the scene in Star Wars at the bar, you know, all these political consultants from around the world. One reason I'm a member is you can call, you know, Country X and go find that political consultant. It could be a journalist. It could be a country expert. And, and debrief them. They'll, you know, really figure out what's going on in the country, what the local customs are. Um, you know, there are books about how to deal with local customs. And get a really strong local presence. You've got to find, you know, you got to be there and spend time with people these days. Um, that's number one. In other words, do your homework. And number two is understand what your brand is about and how it's different, special, and better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can adapt it to that country's culture, but it's got to stand for something almost globally different today. You know, Nike, for example, stands for excellence on athletic fields around the world, playing fields. Uh, Disney, the magic that they bring to you every day. You know, and and these are more than slogans. These are sharply defined brand differences, you know, so that you really understand how you are different from your arch rivals. And you've got to be able to explain that in different cultures, in different languages, you know, crossing cultural uh, differences. You've got to be able to explain that in very, very simple uh, marketing terms because there's no value created today in a company unless you're different. You know, we claim we're different, you know, DMG, Core Strategy Group, my companies, because we preach, teach, and apply insurgent strategy. We help CEOs apply it. We help companies apply it. And, you know, everyone argues they're better at things than everybody else. But, you know, we're sort of different because no one else does this. We borrowed it from our campaign experience. We borrowed it from writing an award-winning book on it. And we apply it every day and coach some of the top CEOs in the country. And it's just because it's different. It's just really different. And there's another little point that we like to underline that it works. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, (laughs) being different is really good. Uh, Roberta Gashweda, who was our early client at the Coca-Cola company, one said, be different or be damned. It's great advice.
1: Oh, I like that. I like that. I'm going to adopt that myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you you guys do it on your radio show. you got to keep doing it.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, David, with all of the consulting work that you've done, uh, are there stories, experiences that just stand out foremost in some of your recollections of uh, the places and the people that you've met and worked for along the way?
0: Well, I mean, just off the top of my head, um, you mentioned the Dalai Lama. It's amazing meeting the Dalai Lama because you feel like you're meeting this, I mean, one of the great religious spiritual leaders of the world. It's like meeting the Pope or... I mean, it's just, it's a really, it's a powerful experience, but you're bowled over by the sort of ordinary nature of him, the sort of natural day-to-day humility of the man. Uh, And I've always observed that often people drawn to politics and leadership are, are, are sort of pulled there by their own pathology. That can be good, and that can be bad. And often they, you know, they get distorted by those responsibilities in that office. That's why, you see politicians today making really, really stupid mistakes. Um, you know, John Edwards' behavior during the 2008 campaign might be an example of that. Uh, I mean, it's just hard to uh, imagine how you get in that mindset and believe you're not going to get caught leading double and triple lives on mm-hmm. the campaign trail. And, and so here's the Dalai Lama, this sort of ordinary man, like, incredibly intelligent, but just, you know, almost shy, <laughs> you know. Almost paradoxically, a leader, <laughs> you know, and and it's just it's an example I think that's inspirational. However, you your religious beliefs shake out. Um, I, I happen to think Buddhism has some real world lessons, no matter what your religion is today. Um, and and he really lives and breathes it. It's a pretty amazing persona that he presents.
1: Mm. What what exactly did you uh, advise him on? What what did he um, retain you guys for?
0: Well, we never took any money from the Dalai Lama, but we um, we worked um, a while ago in developing a uh, an institute for democracy, Asian democracy, uh, that was helping countries like South Korea, like the Philippines, uh, other countries in the region, especially Burma and Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, begin to think about how to democratize, how to apply the tools the strategies, you know, the best practices of of creating more democratic societies, which tend to be more stable, tend to go to war less, tend to be good for the people because they feel represented. Not perfect, but a lot more perfect than, let's say, the way they rule Iran today. Uh, and um, he was a part of that in that it was uh, a reason to spend a lot of time, especially on Burma and Tibet, you know, and look at the Tibet issue, create recommendations, uh, begin to figure out, how um it's not quite happened yet, but how you could get create more stability between China and Tibet, how they could come to some kind of agreements uh and starting to get there, but not all the way there so we we would develop strategies on behalf of that movement and on his behalf and try and help him in every way we could um
1: Another thing that uh that I wanted to share with our audience uh when I refer to the multiple hats you wear um you are actually a very gifted magician, and I'm still trying to analyze the mind-reading uh, trick that you involved me in when we first met you. I'm, uh, I'm going to figure it out, I hope, one day, but I enjoyed it. But uh, how, how did you get involved with magic itself?
0: Now, magic is uh, a hobby going way out of control. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you're good at it.
0: Well, I, I did it as a kid. That maybe helps. I, I was a magician at age five. Some things just capture you, uh, you know, and you just keep going. I watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and I was paying as much attention to the magician who who went on just before them uh, as I was to the, although I did like the Beatles a lot. And, and, you know, some kids are drawn to things. I I retired at the tender age of 10. Um, I would tend to earn a lot of money doing a birthday party and then spend twice as much money the next day on magic tricks. So I was a bankrupt uh, (laughs) nine-year-old magic career. Um, but I, I got out of it for about 25 years and got back into it. A lot of people do. Uh, and have, you know, have the honor of working with, you know, some of the best magicians in the world, best magic school in the country is McBride. Magic school out, of course, in Las Vegas, Jeff McBride, Eugene Berger. Um, and, I. Uh, you know, there's somebody once said, if you can go back to what you did in childhood, you're going to be a happy man
4: mm-hmm. or woman. Mm-hmm. And
0: it's, it's not bad advice for your listeners. I mean, um, you know, what did you like as a child? Mm-hmm. You're probably going to find some wisdom. Um, it's been a great gift for me because it's a hobby, which has um, allowed me to perform for the president at the inaugural ball. Um, it, it, it's allowed me to bring in other entertainers. We have a website, com. And, it, it you know, we do a lot of charity shows, a lot of shows for at-risk kids, a lot of shows uh, for the elderly, someone, when I was getting back into magic um, about six, seven, eight years ago, there's an old saying in showbiz, you need a place to be bad.
4: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, I
0: found, uh, I had kids' birthday parties um <laughs> uh, you know, homes uh, for, uh, you know, adult communities and homes mm-hmm. for the elderly were the place to go. Um, to be bad, and and you know, as you do more and more shows, you get pretty good because you, you come up with, come you experience everything that's possible,
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, and the mind reading is fascinating. I've gotten into mind reading the last couple of years. I I often do it. I do a lot of speeches, um, at, and that website's playoffense.com. And when I do a speech, I do I always talk about forget reality perceptions rule because you know this is true in foreign policy, as true as it is in business. Uh, it's true for everyone listening. You know, the perceptions are almost as important as the reality, you know, because if someone sees something a certain way, that's kind of their reality. And you've got to start there in understanding a customer or a voter or a husband or a wife. And, and uh, you know, magic gets you really good at that because you, you're, you're dealing with perceptions. And the mind reading people, even though you kind of tell them, I can't really do this, well, I still kind of want to believe you're doing it.
4: I mean,
0: <laughs> We all are just, you know, we all are just, you know, looking for that opportunity to believe that our minds have just a yet another dimension, and maybe they do. Thank
1: you so much for joining us on World of Print.
0: It's my pleasure, and uh, next time we'll do a little magic on the radio. How's that?
1: Up next, Chef
2: Shashila Raghavan shares the traditions around the Malaysian table in her new book, Flavors of Malaysia. There
5: is Malaysia table similar flavors, and then in addition combines with...
2: Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, this
4: is Paul Harris from Oaks uh, in England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and we uh, wish you all the success of your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime.
2: Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller, Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world, Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special
4: daily travel deals. Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints. And come visit us in New Orleans sometimes at French Quarter Festivals.
0: And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your
4: hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Shushila Raghavan is the author of the new Malaysian cookbook, Flavors of Malaysia, A Journey Through Time, Taste, and Tradition. Shashila's new book will indeed take you on a wonderful sensory journey as she serves up more than 150 amazing recipes, touching family stories, and fascinating notes about the multicultural origins of Malaysian food in this wonderful collection. Shashila, welcome to World Footprints.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Tony and Yan.
1: You know, in reading the, going through your book and reading the personal stories and regional descriptions that you have throughout the entire cookbook, it was very clear to us that you wrote from the heart. Who inspired you to write this book?
5: Well, of course, my mom and dad, but mostly my mom, uh, grandmother grandmom too. Uh, My mother, I mean, I remember from young, mother used to be, you know, she had nine of us and she would have uh, food, uh, different varieties of food every day, different dishes. And I even remember her coming by each one, nine of us and asking us, um, you know, what we would like to eat uh, every day. And she'd try to cook something special every day. She never got tired. She wouldn't complain. You know? mm. So to me, that was great inspiration. And also, you know, a lot of the stories. My father was a great adventurer with food and his stories at meal tables and he would take us to the wet market. We would um, take us to, on a Sunday to the coffee shop. That Those were our restaurants, actually, when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of all, of course, um, you know, watching my grandma, you know, she Watching in the kitchen, creating uh, some wonderful foods during the weekends, and waking up with the smell and running to the kitchen. So a lot of the stories that I grew up, uh, you know, kind of inspired me to write this book too. And mainly coming from my mom, my grandmother, and my dad.
1: Malaysia was was once a, a major center of the spice trade in Southeast Asia, but it since e- emerged with a new rich culinary well with many new rich culinary traditions. Yes. Uh-huh. Talk a little bit about that because you describe that in your book.
5: Uh, we have, um, you know, it's food in Malaysia is not just about what we eat. Um, it's connected to our daily lives. You know, it, we you know whether we are at school, whether it's at home, whether it's with the hawkers, whether during festivals where we mingle with all the different ethnic groups and you know exposed to different flavours. So the culinary traditions came from many of the uh, group influence or people coming to uh, conquer <laughs> or, or con- uh, through trade. So th- uh, a lot of the uh, people who came from China, from India from Thailand, um, even from the European countries, uh, from Portugal, uh, Holland, and uh, in England.
2: With all of the cultural diffusion that's taken place, how does Malaysian food differ from some of the other Southeast Asian cuisines?
5: Malaysia does have some uh, influences from these uh, Southeast Asian countries, for example, Indonesia, Thailand. If you go to Malaysia in the north, you get some influence of the Thai cooking. If you go down towards Indonesia, you get some of the influence of Sumatra or Javanese or cooking. And then you um, also have the influence from Sri Lankan cooking, and also from the uh, Asia, China, and um, India. But the difference is, I mean, although these, uh, for example, Thai, Chinese, and Indian are product of their own specific cultures, Whereas Malaysia takes those similar flavors and then, in addition, combines them with other uh, influence uh, influ- uh, you know combining with the different ethnic influences to create more unique flavors, you know a kind of a different dimension:
2: Within Malaysia, how are the regional differences manifested, and how does that actually influence some of the signature dishes that come from particular regions within Malaysia?
5: obviously you know if you look in northern when you look at history in northern malaysia it was under the thai kingdom so you know there was a lot of thai influences there i mean even towards the northern states of klantan Perlis, trangano and then even after all they acquired you know their the proper borders and all that but there's still migration going to and fro and so you find a lot of the northern uh uh flavors have some Thai influences in the cooking. Now, if you go down to um, the uh, Slangor, which is the middle state, you see a lot of the Chinese uh, came in there for tin mining, you know, and Parak, and Indians also settled there with all the rubber plantations. They used to work as an administrative or in the field, and so they had a lot of Indian influences there. Now, the Arabs had a strong influence uh, and the Indonesians um, in southern states like Johor. Um, and you find um, a lot of their dishes have, uh, even you'd be surprised they have like uh, uh, even uh, uh, noodles, uh, mm-hmm. the spaghetti into their cooking. Instead of uh, noodles, um, you know, that we have laksas in Malaysia. These are uh, soupy, saucy type of noodles. And you find that instead of uh, noodles in Johor Bahru State, you find uh, spaghetti. And that's the influence of the Arabs, uh, you know, also brought in from Europe, you know. So it's very interesting, you know. And then you go to the East Coast. Uh, The East Coast has mainly a very strong Malay. Uh, Historically, you know, it's very strong Malay, the North and the East, so you see very strong Malay influences there.
1: With all of these, uh, golly, I mean, there's a potpourri of beautiful flavors that uh, culminate in many, many dishes, uh, Malaysian dishes. How did you organize your cookbook to accommodate (laughs) all of these wonderful flavors
5: I think, well, you know, I I grew up in Malaysia, and I think growing up, I had a lot of, uh, I mean, exposure to all these uh, different ethnic flavors, and, and I think one of my important uh, goals for my book was to showcase to people what Malaysia cuisine is, and what Malaysia cuisine is, is not what they eat in restaurants here, where there were only mainly when Malaysian food began, it was just Chinese type of flavors from Malaysia. And you did not see uh, the Malay and the Indian flavors. Then the Malay flavors came a few of the dishes, you know, were on the restaurant menus. But people never thought there were like Indian flavors in Malaysian cuisine. So and then they didn't know what was nonya flavors. They didn't know what was cristal. They didn't know what was chili. So what I my 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 goal was to have a book that showcases what really Malaysian cuisine is and who Malaysians are and to understand the cuisine, you really have to do who, you know first to discuss who the Malaysians are
4: mm-hmm. so
5: i mean that 's what I did in my introduction and not just you know i just didn 't want to create a recipe book, but I wanted people to know first before you get to the recipes who a Malaysian is, what the cultures are, and then the recipes and then it took i mean I got Recipes. Uh, a lot of it is growing up and uh, being exposed to these different cultures, and also friends. We used to go to friends' houses during open house festivals. Each ethnic group celebrated the festivals. And we had open houses where we would just go and visit each other during the festivals, you know, and food would be laid out. So you get exposed to that. And then the hawkers, the different hawkers. <laughs> and you know, I love hawker food. I mean, that's what our restaurants were, you know, coffee shops yes. and hawkers. And so that also you learn what are the different ethnic groups and the different foods that, that they cooked. And. Uh, you know, so a, a combination of things. You know, friends and school cafeterias and hawkers, mm-hmm. and so I mean, and I, I, and you know, to tell you the truth, I think one of the, for me, what also made me write that book is I felt nobody really knew what Malaysian food uh, is. Yeah,
1: okay. and and I think where you know where the uh, cuisine is concerned, you know, there's a lot of belief that all Malaysian dishes are are very hot and spicy and and in- Indeed, a lot of your recipes do call for jalapenos and you know other standard <laughs> spices, but 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 that's uh, that's that's a generalization, I think.
5: Uh. It is, it is, it is. Because if you look at the, a lot of the dishes I have, yes, the the ones that are hot are really coming from the Malays, the Malay community. Um, they love hot, spicy. They love these bird peppers, very hot. They call chili padis, You know. But then uh, Indians also. Indian food is not necessarily hot. It can be um, hot and as well as mild. But the uh, the food coming from the Chinese influence, they are milder. You know, they're not mm-hmm. hot. But what they have done is they've incorporated condiments. Condiments is a big, big thing in Malaysia. We use condiments to put over everything. You yes. know, <laughs> over noodles. Even if it's hot, our dishes are hot. No, you still add the condiments. On, on the meal table, we have condiments because it suits each individual taste. Yes, you know, so. I
1: remember from my time in Penang. <laughs> oh,
5: you did go to Penang, Yes, I see. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Penang, was, Penang is one of my favorite places, yes.
1: Anywhere near the water is a favorite place of mine, so uh, that, yes. that's what drew me there. But you, um, Sushila, yes. uh, Sushila, you have a chapter in your book called Fusion Malaysian, and I'm wondering, I mean, Malaysian food <laughs> is already a
5: fusion of other <laughs> cultures. So yes. What is
1: this chapter, Fusion Malaysian?
5: That fusion means taking some of the foods that are very commonly eaten in in the U.S., like spaghetti-like roast chicken uh, uh, sandwiches, you know. I have a sambal sandwich, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. You know, the concept of taking a sambal and using it as a spread with chicken and and cheeses and creating layers of flavors in a sandwich. And then a burger, you know, is so popular in this country. Um, You really don't have burgers in Malaysia growing up. Perhaps now with all the Taco Bell and the Fridays you know TGI and all you have these but so that's what I mean by fusion when um, especially I relate that to my daughter and her friends and, and then also the my American friends, you know, where I would do that, uh, you know, not for my festivals, but the traditional festivals in this country that celebrate it.
2: With over 150 recipes and flavors of Malaysia, I'm sure some of the, the recipes might be intimidating uh, to the <laughs> first-time preparer of these foods. Are there some dishes, maybe a dish or two, that you think might be a good gateway to Malaysian cuisine and culture that... You would recommend uh, the novice perhaps to begin their adventure of Malaysian cuisine with?
5: Yeah, actually, uh, one of the uh, my my goal for this book was to keep the flavors, the authenticity, you know, but yet that would appeal to everyone. And um, so what I try to do is simplify the recipes so it doesn't look so intimidating. Secondly, also try to make it a little healthier and easier to cook. So three things, easy to make, prepare, um, uh, you know, not so much of oil and not so much of uh, fishy taste and things like that. So, you know, I, I I'm, it's, it looks, I don't, and, you know, I've, I've also done classes here now, cooking classes, and I notice that mostly um, these Westerners in my classes, and they come in, they take the recipe, and I'm amazed. At the end of the day, the recipes come out great so, I mean, I don't even show them. I go over it, they take it over, and they do a hands-on class. And it comes out great. So, I mean, that's why, and and a lot of the ingredients that are in the book, um, I give you substitutions also. And a lot of them can be found at supermarkets. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, so I think a lot of people uh, say that, no, you have to use this. Not really. Like yesterday when I had a cooking class and I, I uh, they couldn't find enough of uh, Chinese broccoli, so I said use broccolini, and the flavor came out great with broccolini, you know, so, and, um, so, I mean, you know, you can have substitutions uh, instead of galangal, which, you know, people say, what is galangal? It's a family, it's commonly used in Malaysian cooking, in Malay cooking, but you can substitute with ginger, so I've used ginger throughout, you know, so, um, and, since we are all so familiar with curries, mm-hmm. there's one recipe there, and, and in, you know, people love curries, and we are already aware of Indian cuisine here. So there is a curry recipe that's a traditional curry recipe in my book, which is very easy to prepare. And, um, and the way I've done it also is I've put spices together as blends, so it's easy for you to read, it's easy for you to prepare. Well, I
1: tell you, this is one of the most beautiful cookbooks I've I've ever uh, seen. And you know, I'm I'm not eating very much today, and I've been flipping through the, the photographs, and I'm I'm. I, by the way, I took those photographs myself. Oh my gosh! Well, they're beautiful, but oh, thank you. but I, I I just thank you because you know, as with languages it's easier to learn a new language when you love and appreciate the culture and the yeah. same applies to new culinary experiences and you did just a wonderful job of sharing uh, your personal stories and historical and cultural insights uh, in your book and in, in to help people gain an appreciation for uh, Malaysia as a country, but certainly um, the, uh, the the culinary traditions of Malaysian food. And I thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints and, and sharing your part of the world with us.
5: Yes, thank you very much. And if you would like any other further information, you could go. I have a website, that's com and also you can go to the malaysian kitchen uh new nyc
1: and i i actually have your website link on uh your guest page on our website
5: oh that's great and yeah. you know you asked about so that is one of my uh, str- uh strong points is um i have i create spice blends uh As- especially asian spice blends and i have them at whole foods in the uh tri-state area in new york so once you are able To blend certain spices and you you, believe me you can create a lot of these Asian dishes easily you know they are not intimidating at all
1: well my dear uh, thank you very much thank uh, you Sushila Rakhavan, author of the new Malaysian cookbook flavors of Malaysia thank you for joining us
5: Thank you, Tony and Yen. Thanks again.
1: We hope you enjoyed our show today. And as always, we look forward to spending time with you and connecting with you throughout the week on our social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and others. So you can follow us on those platforms and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals from our website, worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
5: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
2: World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.